The business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, politics, creatives, world affairs. Full disclosure, and we are live at Charlottesville's historic Paramount Theater with CBS Face the Nation's Margaret Brennan. The parties are redefining themselves. People are trying to figure out who America is in the world right now, in a world that is changing, and who we are as a country. I think these are really tough conversations and that you're seeing them play out within the parties in some very specific ways in the form of humans asking to be the embodiment of that vision, right? And they have different provisions of it. That's right. Celebrating 50 years on the air for WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station, Margaret and I will discuss everything from foreign affairs to election 2024 to the economy and her own journey to Sunday morning. So please take your seats, silence your phones, and do stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon and Ludwin a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon and Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe and call your girlfriend and tell her, is FullDRadio.com. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. Joining me on stage and in person at the historic Paramount Theater in Charlottesville, Virginia, is CBS Face the Nation moderator, Margaret Brennan. I like this. Can I can I have an audience on Face the Nation on Sundays? That's a sure. lot of fun. <laughs> a veritable Swiss Army knife inspector gadget of a journalist in her fifth year helming the storied Sunday news program. Margaret has devoted cross sections of her career to covering finance and the economy, diplomacy, politics. She's even mastered Irish dancing. A proud UVA grad, Margaret recently joined the Alumni Advisory Board at the UVA Center for Politics. Welcome. I love having you on because as I described, you can go in so many different directions. You can almost play kind of Wheel of Fortune or Spin the Wheel, Margaret, Uh stop at politics or anything. But I'm going to come in at, at kind of a wild card. Charlottesville, the 434. I was actually thinking of you in August 27. My relationship with Charlottesville, of course, it's in the area where my public radio show runs, but I take my kids apple picking here, peach picking. You've seen it on Instagram before. But this city and the brand Charlottesville took a body blow in August of 2017 with the Unite the Right rally. And in fact, I was driving today on Heather Higher Way, the corridor where the young woman was mowed down by a white supremacist. And you can, of course, draw a through line from that event to the attempted insurrection of January 2021. And I just want to throw that out there as a Rorschach, Charlottesville. It means so much to you. You're so involved, but the name has been disrupted and distorted. You're right. And um, that that hurts when you hear it, because you're right. When you say Charlottesville now, people associate it with those horrible events. And for me, I remember when the night that the rally was crossing through the lawn um, and seeing on Twitter some of the images and 
for me, the lawn was like this. First of all, if you went to UVA, the lawn is a sacred place. But if you have the association with it that I did, which is that is where my husband proposed to me. You know, that is the lawn I walked through with my best friends when I graduated. You know, that is the center of Jefferson's Academic Village. And you're going, what is going on? And I remember showing the picture to my husband, who also went to UVA, and we were just beyond horrified. And it was nights later, I believe, when people started holding rallies in remembrance of Heather and in protest of the hate and the smears that you saw the lawn light up. And that is the image I want to remember. Not the torches, but the people who came out with lights to remember what happened and to say this was wrong. And one of the things that I remember very distinctly as well was, I believe that was a Saturday, I remember waking up and turning on Face the Nation as a viewer, which I did at that point. I wasn't moderator because I wanted to know how it was going to be explained. That was the thing that even though I was in the midst of covering politics all the time, in the midst of covering the White House, that Sunday morning, okay, let me make sense of what I just lived through, was something that Face the Nation helped me digest. And John Dickerson was in the moderator position at that point. I remember him with his orange and blue tie, a UVA grad. And I remember sending him a note saying, I love that you did that. I knew that our executive producer, Mary Hager, who's here, was a UVA grad and how horrified they also must have been. And then fast forward to, I was a White House correspondent. And that summer, I went with then President Trump to Trump Tower. I was following him on his vacation. As White House correspondents do, there's always a pool with the president. Reporters always have to follow him around just in case of news. And so we had gone, any president, this is any president. There was just a lot more news at that time. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, so we, we went into Trump Tower and we weren't supposed to actually have an event that day other than there was some announcement about infrastructure that was supposed to be just sort of a bunch of boards announcement and walk off. And that ended up becoming that now infamous moment where the president was so angry at the coverage of what had happened and the attribution and linkage to him personally um, that he unloaded. And that was the good people on both sides. And that came out of the questioning the reporters, including myself, put to him that day. But it just, to me, it felt so personal, Charlottesville, that I felt it in a way that I think some of the other correspondents couldn't quite get their hands around that, but that's the lawn, you know, that is UVA. That is not what any of us stood for. And so I was proud that I think a lot of alums have come out and really tried to help emphasize the great work and the great legacy that UVA does have. You know, in hindsight, I'm surprised it wasn't any sort of clarion call for law enforcement I don't know if Terry McAuliffe sent in the National Guard. This is an open carry state. And there are people on the sidelines with AR-15s. And something could have gone awry, a spray paint can or pop a firework or something, and a, an errant bullet, and then you have a Boston massacre type situation. But that didn't happen. And then you saw kind of in slow motion what was almost inevitable happen at the Capitol. Well, I mean, I, it certainly was uh, an event and the fallout from it that changed the course of our politics. Our current president, President Biden, part of his story of what inspired him to run after having chosen to take himself out of the prior presidential race was because of Charlottesville. That's what he attributes it to and saying that there was this moral moment, this call he felt where he had to run. So 
it absolutely has a continued legacy and impact. And I think it's uh, really interesting some of the choices the university has made as well, just with the awakening and open discussion of race and troubled history at the university in the past and, and putting forward that memorial that I don't know if most people here in Charlottesville have seen it, but people at home may not know. But it tells the story, essentially, of those who built, physically built the university um, and the stories of, of those whose names were not very publicly acclaimed President uh, Thomas Jefferson, but who were his slaves um, or who worked for him. And I think that's a good thing that that kind of full disclosure of what our history is and the ugly parts of it, too, is happening. So I would love to try to lean more into that part of what have we learned over these past few years since that moment, rather than being defined by that horrible night and what happened. If you try to fast forward to election 2024, and it's still really early ahead of the 2024 primaries and whatnot, we're hearing that Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, is on the brink of declaring, maybe after putting out feelers. CBS News, I believe, has reported that, yes. And so in the Venn diagram of the GOP voter base and the possible, you know, the overlap of the base plus moderates plus the elusive independent, I've never seen a precedent of, in this case, Trump got walloped in the midterms in 2018. There was a big blue wave. He lost the presidency in 2020 and, I guess, the Senate. I mean, the, the, the Senate was able to hold the states like Georgia and Arizona were lost. 2022, some of his proxy candidates didn't fare very well. I've never seen someone who kind of lost an election by all conventional standards get such a wholehearted second chance from the party. Like imagine George Bush Sr. coming back in 96 or, I don't know, Gerald Ford in 1980. Well, in terms of the party, I think that's that's a difficult even just phrase, right, to say that there's one unified view within the party. I think we're seeing this play out in real life right in front of us. Donald Trump is the, according to most polls at this point, most likely front runner. But we are early on. Ron DeSantis also has gotten a lot of attention. And so what does that say? It means it's it's not decided yet. We have an election. We have a primary. We have a long road before we get to election day. And you have candidates who are still trying to figure out if they're going to go jump in with both feet. Nikki Haley's already in this race. You have Tim Scott expected, the senator from South Carolina expected to uh, announce. You have Vice President Mike Pence. What are they playing for? Looking in June, probably. Honestly, among us, what are they playing for? I mean, Mike Pence, what's the upside for him? Book tour? Of becoming president? Do you think he's going to become president? I mean, you're not going to get Donald Trump's endorsement. Or can you even imagine Donald Trump magnanimously at the Republican nominating convention saying, DeSantis is the future of the party. I'm a kingmaker now. I No, I can't. I can't. I, I would be, look, when people ask this question of who's going to run in 2024, who is, right? I can tell you based on the polling where Donald Trump is and that he obviously has the name recognition, right? But he also brings with him all of what you just laid out and all of that baggage. And we don't know how that'll be digested by Republicans in the primary and then ultimately once we get to election day. But th these are the things we have to talk through. And I think look at some of the very real issues that are facing the country right now. Look, it, when people ask me, how's it going to end? Look, I'd be lying because there's so much unexpected. I can't tell you what the off-ramp is, which is essentially what you're driving at. What is the off-ramp for Donald Trump to say, I no longer want to run? And it neatly gets packaged up 
and we look like past presidential primaries, right, where the party all unifies. I can't quite sketch that out for you. Um, but that's also why I can't tell you how it ends. And I'm also thinking about what's keeping the Democrats together behind Joe Biden. There seems to be this, I mean, aside from idiosyncratic candidates, what is it, Marianne Williamson or um, Mr. Kennedy? Why isn't there a younger player coming to call out this? You're, he clearly has high disapproval ratings. He's clearly weak. It's early and he's come back before. We saw how he catapulted out of South Carolina, but there doesn't seem to be a farm system or a movement kind of saying that, look, the opposition is truly imperfect. If we just get this more appealing candidate that can unite a younger generation of voters, it seems to be so elusive. Well, yes. And I think you also, look, we were having these conversations more than four years ago, too, and the Democratic Party wasn't united. There are arguments within the Democratic Party, as we saw the four years prior to that, over just, is it the Bernie Sanders wing or the Hillary Clinton wing? And and how do you unify? And I think that just gets to what we're seeing across the board right now is the parties are redefining themselves. People are trying to figure out who America is in the world right now, in a world that is changing, and who we are as a country. I think these are really tough conversations and that you're seeing them play out within the parties in some very like specific ways in the form of humans asking to be the embodiment of that vision, right? And they have different provisions of it. You know, we have an interview for Face the Nation this week with Bob Gates, the former defense secretary and former CIA chief, um, who served in so many different administrations. And I was looking through just the foreign policy statements that so many of the Republican candidates have said. And there's like, two, maybe three different points of view within the party. It is not a very clear Reagan, Republican, hawkish view. We're talking about this like, it's not quite isolationism. It's like Jacksonian, you know, sort of very narrow U.S. interests. But then you have Mike Pence and Nikki Haley saying, no, you know, this is about moral arguments here. And then I look over at Joe Biden and also the progressive movement challenging what he says when he talks about Ukraine being this like existential fight about defending the global world order since World War II. There are plenty within the Democratic Party on the progressive side who don't think America has been a force for good in many ways in recent years. So I I don't think it's clearly like one party's got it sorted. I think it's just easier to define yourself in opposition. And that's kind of where we are. It's, It's easier to say what you oppose. Full disclosure, do stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. My guest is Margaret Brennan, host of CBS's Face the Nation, iconic Sunday mornings for so many decades. In past lives, Margaret was uh, hosting Bloomberg TV mornings. We used to do CNBC together. I understand that you worked for Louis Rukeyser yeah. on PBS right out of college. That used to be mandatory Friday night viewing if you were an investing junkie mm-hmm. back in the day. And I first got to know you through the markets, which is fascinating. I think it's pretty surreal if you know you had predictions and people told you, Time Magazine or wherever, to start the year that you'd have 3.5% unemployment, inflation abating, and uh, largely for reasons nobody can understand, maybe an embarrassment (laughs) of riches, we had two of the biggest bank failures in history. Um, I think it's such a treat to be able to watch you on Sunday morning and you you bring on somebody like a Scott Galloway or a Kara Swisher, you know completely how to volley the serve with finance for them. It's not like you're delegating that to anybody else because you've covered that world before. Oh, I love having them on. They're they're fun. But it's um you know, I'm I'm blessed that we have this great conversation every week just among the producers on the show about 
what rises to the level of making it onto that one hour. Because there's a lot happening in the world and distilling it down to what people need to know. And whether you're just looking at polls and what people are concerned about, the economy, I feel like, is always at the top of people's lists. But certainly right now, unpacking these forces that are, as you were saying, these are economic questions that like we're going to see doctoral theses on you know in years in the future of how do they come out of a pandemic with inflation where it is we're you know just complete remaking of the global world order and how did the world's richest economy manage through it or was that the moment when it stopped being right like we are in one of these moments where we're looking at a rising china and trying to figure out you know the primary weapon the United States has relied on for the last few presidents has been our financial strength. People don't always think about that, that it is the power of the American dollar that is behind the sanctions. Explain this paradox, if you will. I remember you covering the United States' unprecedented credit rating downgrade in 2011. Standard & Poor's downgraded U.S. debt when Congress and the White House were playing chicken with the debt ceiling, if I remember. If anything, if you look back at the last 12 years, we've only vastly increased debt. Our borrowing costs have fallen. I don't know if that's a moral hazard in and of itself, but there's an element of cry wolf to it that we, you know, we were supposed to be taken down several notches. People were talking about the end of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Is there so much of kind of this being everybody said, well, this is it. The great inflation's coming. And you get inured to it. I mean, you you know those guests, the gold bugs and people used to come on Bloomberg TV, <laughs> but the dollar holds. We have a, a yeah. unique position in this country as the world's currency of choice and debt of choice. Sure. And like some of those conversations about, I, I mean, I remember covering, starting to cover the State Department in 2012 and having a conversation with one of the diplomats who I was asking these questions and she was like, are you kidding me? Like someone's going to choose another currency other than the U.S. dollar? laughing about it. And I was like, you know, people in the financial world debate this all the time. But now we're at the point where if you listen to the language from the current administration and the last few, there's a reason they're deeply concerned about China and the challenge that they're posing to United States dominance. And they are using their financial muscles in a way that is this like alternative system you're right. It doesn't easily get shut off overnight. But there was a headline in the Associated Press today about something we've been talking about a few times on Face the Nation over the past year, which is this warning of a emerging debt crisis in the developing world. Why? Because they're going to China for loans rather than going through places like Zambia, Mozambique, right? These indebted developing countries looking to China for financial help, looking to China for help because it doesn't come with the lecture about human rights from the United States. It doesn't come with the requirements of living up to certain things that the international financial institutions, the World Banks and the IMFs come with. And so people are choosing an alternative. Does it ultimately pay off for them? I don't know. But that is a place where you are starting to see that clash, the U.S. and China there in the developing world. When you talk about China, I'm always fascinated that this country, this behemoth, which has taken tens and tens of millions of people out of poverty, over the last three, four decades, it has not had a hard landing, uh, a true deep economic crisis since its ascension to the World Trade Organization. I mean, we had the rolling emerging market crises of the late 90s, visited Malaysia, Thailand, Brazil, Latin America, other frontier economies. But China, by and large, has been able to produce and print its way out of these problems. I mean, the stats coming out of 2008, the high-speed rail, the highways, the amount of cement 
that the country used. I ask you this, people might ask you to game it out. Who hurts more in a situation where China falls or the United States falls? Don't they need us it's as It's mutually badly? assured destruction, right? Like it, we are just so financially intertwined. Also, right they now. own what in, in our treasuries? They own a chunk of treasuries, but they don't <laughs> want to doom the American consumer. No, they because that is completely intertwined with their economy. Absolutely. That's why next week, you know, they just announced from the Chinese embassy that the commerce secretary is going to be meeting uh, with her con counterpart and the trade uh, representative is going to meet with her counterpart as this sort of like opening things up with China again for the first time since that spy balloon was shot down um, a, a few months ago. But that's because the first foot forward is about business. It's about, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, you saw the Treasury Secretary go to China, possibly before the Secretary of State, because that is what matters in that relationship more than anything. And the White House, you know, Washington and Beijing both know, like, we can fight about a lot of things, but we have to get this right on trade and on um, uh, how much our economies are intertwined. But what's interesting to bring it back to our politics is, you know, going into 2024, everyone's going to try to outhawk each other on both sides of the ticket. And for I was talking to a Republican from a prior administration who's like auditioning with a campaign now, essentially, about what are the things that some of the candidates are interested in talking about and everything. I mean, it's always somewhat this way that foreign policy is filtered through domestic policy on the campaign trail because people just care about what impacts them most directly. But it's more so than ever. You know, China foreign policy is going to be transmitted to voters as fentanyl. It's going to be fentanyl policy. It's going to be your jobs, right, and your manufacturing. It's going to be supply chain. Those things are going to be so much more forward and heard about in a way, potentially in debate stages, hopefully we have debates, um, uh, in a way that you haven't heard them in the past. And that's China policy. It's just going to be dressed up as something else. But there is so much concern on both sides of the aisle, on China in particular and on Ukraine. That's like the only other issue where you do see a lot of bipartisanship foreign policy-wise. But China is going to be something you hear a lot about on the campaign trail. How much is China watching Ukraine to see that the United States and the rest of the world get tired or blink that it might give us our opening on annexing Taiwan? I mean, that's been certainly what President Biden says, that Xi Jinping's taking notes. That's certainly what a lot of more traditional Republican um, hawks would say in terms of we can't afford, I think, you know, I think Nikki Haley said something about that specifically. That's how she explains to her potential voters why support is necessary. But then there's also this other point of view. And I think Josh Hawley had an op-ed on it today. But you've heard even Donald Trump at that town hall he did with CNN talk about diminishing military readiness on the part of the United States, that you can't do two things at once, that if you help Ukraine, all of a sudden you don't have enough to help Taiwan over here. And forcing choices. I mean, a little bit of that is a false choice. It is true that U.S. stockpiles have been impacted and drawn down because of the speed with which weapons have had to be provided to Ukraine because they need them now. Um, and that has been this whole other boom for the defense industry right now. But there's a it takes time to build a lot of these weapon systems and the like. So there's like a legitimate conversation to be had about military readiness. But there is this false framing of we can't do two things at once. But that's not necessarily the first thing, time we've heard that. The last few presidents have said we can't do two things at once, which is why we need to get out of Afghanistan so we can go focus on China. Now the conversation is, oh, well, we can do Ukraine, but we need to also do China. So at the nexus of your trade of markets coverage and foreign affairs coverage is 
how is it that Russia has not been hurt as badly as we thought we would be if all of these sanctions happen, if Apple starts supporting, stops supporting iPhone customers over there, that suddenly he's a pariah? There seem to be these pressure valves that he can take advantage of either through China, China, Turkey. Who's benefiting financially from the war? China. They are selling in. I had a, a, a bank CEO say something recent, recently to me about it, about all the Chinese goods that are now on shelves in Russia. And that's where I'm talking about that, like alternative to the U.S. in a way and stepping in, that they've been buying sanctioned Russian oil at a $30 discount for a long time, $30 per barrel discount. Are there essential parts that they really need from Boeing or Airbus or other things that at some point Russia, you'll turn you in, Yeah, that oh. you'll turn into, you know, Eastern Bloc Bulgaria if you don't get these things? I don't know the answer to that. I know that the United States has few things that it hasn't sanctioned that we get from Russia, including fuel for our nuclear plants, which that's a huge story. Margaret, we um, still buy it from them. I remember you covering the Arab Spring in 2012 and 2011. In fact, you speak Arabic, you've traveled through the Arab Middle East. I look back, people forget it now, but Mohammed bin Selman showed up in uh, Blazers and got tours of Silicon Valley, Wall Street, a Starbucks, mm -hmm. hooked up with, I don't remember if it was a you know, Michael Bloomberg, Bill Gates and everything. And it looked just like a real turning of the page while wow, you had a young, charismatic guy. He apparently had all these people in a hotel held up. I think he was going to root out corruption or something. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, and then the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi, which seems to my mind like the most expensive hit in history. Why would you do that, right? If any rational, <laughs> right? He has not been received since by this White House, uh, Donald Trump gave him a President bit of a pass. Biden went to visit him. Went to visit him, but I think under In duress when oil hit middle triple digits and they did the fist pump. And now you see all these things about a mysterious pivot. It, it, we thought that the Saudis and Iran were at loggerheads, but there's rapprochement in the air, yeah. that there's mood maybe for the Saudis to turn to Benjamin Netanyahu, that suddenly there's a balance of power calculation. Um, I'm fascinated by this, and I was wondering what you thought about him. His, his pickle, his bind, and Saudi Arabia overall. Well, there's a big push by the Biden administration right now to try to get Saudi Arabia and Israel to normalize. There's been a lot of back and forth travel that some of the president's national security advisors have been making in, in recent But then that, tra that, that transitively then normalizes Mohammed bin Salman. He's there for mm -hmm. good. He's the crown prince. Yes. And our, I don't want to get killed for saying this, but our CIA doesn't foment... <laughs> stuff anymore. <laughs> Not like Chile or I'm just because there seems to be such an opportunity. There's a person there who's, I think it was not a rational move. You had I, so I, I much do not to endorse the, no, I do not in any way endorse uh, what was done. It was horrific. Um, and, you know, the administration laid out publicly what U.S. intelligence assessed happened. It's absolutely horrific. But the choice was made as so often is that the broader interest of the United States had to do with its reliance on Saudi Arabia, the largest purchaser of U.S. weapons in the world, and um, yes, a provider of fossil fuels, um, or at least a big uh, player in terms of helping to determine OPEC. But there are so many deep relationships the U.S. and Saudi Arabia has on counterterrorism, on everything. So yeah, that was not a choice the president wanted to make uh, when he went to Saudi Arabia, but he did it because of all of this. Bashar al-Assad, the strong man in Syria, okay, that one yeah. has apparently survived. And thinking survived back, survived and apparently being welcomed back into the 
the fold. Is it because it's the least of, of you know the enemy you know or don't know? I think, for example, from Israel's perspective, you share a border, but he's also a proxy for Iran. But as opposed to a vacuum, and then the country breaks up into sectarian regions again, I mean, how is it that he survived? I think back to those horrific scenes of people being gassed, which reminds me of Saddam Hussein and Halabja, was it, in the late 80s. And I think President Obama and his foreign policy staff blinked. And this guy survived, and he's now part of the fray again. And hundreds of thousands of people died in the interim. Mm-hmm. A very narrow definition of America's, you know, interest in the matter. And I, I think that's why it's fascinating to me to talk the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and what we are in the world, and then the choices that you have to make on foreign policy, national security. That's just fascinating to me because we can say who we are and who we have been since you know 1945 in terms of the institutions that were set up and the values there. But then you bring up a great example, but that gets you back to and what power and what lever. And I covered all that very in depth when that happened. But he is a war criminal who gassed his own people in front of cameras and that he won that war. Um, there are still people who are trying to fight him. There was also the horrific overlay and terrorism and terror groups who have basically carved out states. I mean, that's why the United States sent troops into Syria. Uh, and Vladim- keeps them to this day, 900 Vladimir years Putin in Syria. also saw a void mm-hmm. and propped him up. And maybe that encouraged Crimea in some sense. You can always draw that. The French would line. make that argument to you. Absolutely. Explain. A number of international players would make that argument that it wasn't one thing. It was a, a number of things over the past few years where Vladimir Putin looked at this and he said, you know what? Who's going to stop me? Syria. You look at 2014 when that initial partial invasion of Ukraine happened in the east with the little green men, as it was described. It was sanctions. It was condemnation. It was kicking Russia out of the group of most powerful economies gathering out of the club, G7 now, right? And he wasn't militarily stopped. The judgment was who was going to do it. Um, And a series of events like that. And he made that bet, went ahead with the full-scale invasion. And what was different about that? He started bombing a European capital city and and scared the bejesus out of the rest of Europe. Now, it's reinforced NATO in some respects, but it's also pointed out the bottlenecks of it. And you have a NATO member in Turkey that's allowed to still have behind-the-scenes relations with Vladimir Putin and, I guess, is allowed to nix Sweden's ascension to system. I mean, there are some vulnerabilities. What, to your mind, does Turkey, under its strong man who might win re-election, want? You know, it used to be that they were aspiring as a bridge between the Middle East and Europe to EU membership. But has that ship sailed? Will they be a full member? What does it want? Who does it want to I mean, align with? NATO it's its members. own thing. These are all the times I want to email Margaret Brennan. Like, you can be a NATO member and still blow kisses to the yeah, and I, I, Russian dictator. we had him on, we had the re-elected, um, it appears, president of Turkey uh, at that time, um, I guess it was a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, on two years ago, on Face the Nation, um, when he came to the United Nations. And I mean, talked to him and asked him about having his bodyguards, his thugs beat up American citizens in the United States, in the United States, um, who were there protesting against um, him, and uh, he just denied the whole thing. Um, and that's what's great about TV—you could show the video of it actually happening when he's telling you it didn't happen. 
So look, again, a NATO member, they're not getting kicked out. Very hugely important country to the United States. And uh, so one of those allies that the United States kind of holds its nose and gets along with on a number of fronts, but a huge power player. And yes, they want to be power. He wants to be a power broker with Russia. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. A special shout out to our listeners across Virginia Public Radio, WVTF Radio IQ, celebrating its 50th anniversary. You can catch me on all the socials at Full D Radio. If you're just joining us, I'm on stage at the historic Paramount Theater in Charlottesville, Virginia, with CBS Face the Nation's moderator, Margaret Brennan. I've called her a veritable Swiss Army knife of coverage. (laughs) I could keep going around the world with you. We could concentrate on markets, politics, foreign affairs, diplomacy, realpolitik, but I want to focus on you, Margaret. Uh Uh-oh. We're back to your your UVA stomping grounds, and I want you to take me back to 2002, effectively your journey in those 21 years. uh, You went immediately after UVA, what, you took a Fulbright and you took this job with Louis Rukeyser? Well, I had, when I was an undergrad here, I studied foreign affairs and Middle East studies and I minored in Arabic. So I had the the Fulbright Hayes Grant, which is language-based in that summer, uh, I guess this was all pre-9-11. It's a very different Middle East, but I had it in the summer, in a summer semester. Um, and then I came back and it was, I have full-throated endorsement of study abroad experiences. I think they're very, mm-hmm. very useful. And I think it took some of the things I studied in the classroom and just changed how I thought of them in a very real sense. I mean, first of all, I think anyone who studies a language when you're just thrown on the street and you have to get around, it is the most humbling experience and you will never come back and deal with someone who speaks, who's trying to speak English in the same way because you're like, Oh my God, it is humbling to just be struggling and saying, I sound like a five-year-old and I'm just trying to get in the taxi and tell them where to go and why won't it come out right? And it, that's huge. But also on, um, in terms of having a first person experience, I think of that as that summer in Jordan and traveling throughout the Middle East as really, um, changing how I thought of that by saying the first person experience is so valuable. And what is journalism often about? It's about going out and meeting people and talking to people and having that first person instead of, you know, sort of reading about and then translating, being there. I, I loved that. And that's where I start, first started thinking about journalism. My mom, um, when I came back, talked to me about that because I would get frustrated sometimes with how things were covered on TV. And she was like, why don't you try it? <laughs> when I finally disabused myself of this kind of random walk on Wall Street and my first job, uh, and I wanted to get into journalism, I remember thinking to myself that it's not like these places are overtly welcoming. You don't open up a Fortune magazine no. and see a career section. or no. <laughs> You have to have a lot of moxie. They didn't care so much about pedigree. It was all about your clips. Could you do things on spec? Could you write me an incredible memo, kid, that sweeps me off my feet? I don't care about your resume. I don't care about your senior thesis. I still have an unopened LSAT prep kit from the year 1998 when I graduated. Mm. But how did you pick this opportunity? I mean, it's into the great wide open. Does he? Did, did the late Louis Rukeyser even record in, in New York, in Connecticut? Yeah. No, in New York. I think you'd do well with that, though. You're so like, I feel like you could do this elevator pitch really well when you were starting out? Well, only after the PTSD of the last 25 years has informed (laughs) that. There are many things that I would say to my 22-year-old self, but I'm amazed that I, you know, I 
parachuted into New York and took clips. And yeah. when somebody was absent, I decided to go on TV and I didn't know what I was talking about, but I did it. And yeah. after a while, it's like, it's like being there is nine mm-hmm. tenths of the job. But how did you find this show and the, the verve and the audacity to kind of go and do that? I was graduating from UVA and I went home, um, I think it was on the spring break of my fourth year. And I, my parents went to Europe on a long delayed trip and I agreed to help watch my baby brother. And so I moved home. And while he was at school, I first, I drove into Philadelphia, which is, they, I grew up in Connecticut, but now they live in Pennsylvania. I drove, drove into Philadelphia. I drove out to Lancaster, PA, which I learned when I got there and went in calling it Lancaster and was quickly corrected when I got to the local news station and just talked to UVA grads that I found in these places. Uh, it's for advice about how to become a journalist and how to get into television uh, because I only had under my belt um, an unpaid internship at CNN, which I did in Atlanta the prior summer. And I loved being in a newsroom. So I knew that much that I liked being in a newsroom, that I liked television. I needed to learn how to do this. And I just drove around and none of those jobs panned out. But it was like a lot of research of going in and talking to people and explaining. And everyone told me, you got to earn your stripes for a number of years. You got to go out to the very far market and work your way up and this and that. And I was like, I don't, I don't, I can't. To work local TV and to get pulled up by CBS or the Today Show or something. And I was like, I don't know, because maybe I do want to go back to school and maybe I do want to get, you know, more degrees or, um, so I was like, I don't know that I want to make that long-term investment at age 22 in, in trying to have that 15 year plan, right. To get back to the city I know I want to live in. So why don't I work, why don't I move to New York, take this job with CNBC for this anchor, uh, Louis Rukeyser, who was, he had this Friday program called Wall Street Week, which people watch to have sort of make sense of what happened in the markets. He wouldn't blink when he gave the introduction, I remember. <laughs> yeah. And he had these big leather chairs and you'd have to watch the people walk in yes. and take yeah. their yeah, seats. Yeah, they did. That, that is kind of I was hokey. like, wow. Hokey. Yeah. But he, his audience was very dedicated and he went from PBS to CNBC and I interviewed and I knew nothing about the financial markets. And I remember I, I my dad had worked on Wall Street, but I knew nothing about it. I memorized where the Dow closed, which as anyone knows, means absolutely nothing. But I thought it meant something. <laughs> and he didn't ask me about any of it. He asked me about what I'd studied in school. He asked me about everything. His brother had gone to UVA and he sang me the UVA fight song. Oh, wow. And um, so that I think won me some points. And then he just talked to me about the Middle East because he had been a foreign correspondent for years before becoming a financial anchor. And so I think he just saw, oh, I can, I can, she's malleable, right? Like I can teach her. And that was how I got my first paid job in television um, and learned to line produce and learned to do all these other things. And uh, it was, it was good homework. 9-11 happened on your senior year at UVA, right? It did. Mm-hmm. Was there part of you that entertained the idea of maybe going to Jordan or stringing from where? Yes. Um, and one of the job offers I got was from CNN to go to Atlanta for, I think it was less money than my college tuition <laughs> cost. Like it was like a pittance to work overnights to take in feeds and help translate stuff because um, of, of the war in Iraq. That's where we ended that year. And I just, I was like, no. I don't think I want to do that. How do I, let me just figure out if I want to work in television. Let me figure out the craft of it. Um, and they had a show at CNBC at the time that also was doing um, a lot of, of national security and foreign affairs. Because, I mean, as you know, in financial news, it's everything. Yeah, yeah. Traders trade off information about everything. So 
oil. That's the Middle East, right? Like, How did you get your break at CNBC? How did you go from Rue Kaiser to CNBC? Well, Rue Kaiser was at CNBC at that point. Yeah, he had left PBS, uh, CBS, or CNBC bought his show. Um, And then uh, I... Didn't Scaramucci take one final crack at Wall Street Week? It didn't work. I think he tried to buy it recently, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who owns it now. But I had very... I learned how to interview and it. Like, I think back in horror at these hedge fund managers who were pleased to be on Lou's show. And he was like, you have to talk to... Margaret, who's going to do all the background for me and send it to me. And like, they must have been like, who the hell is this kid asking me these ridiculous questions about very basic finance? So how do you, we always ask. Um, but we, it was a great way to learn. We ask our guests when they think back retrospectively, how do you fight that imposter syndrome? And you stay with it. Like, I'm going to persevere. I'm bound to meet someone in a green room. This is, this fever is going to break. Just hold on to it. Well, I was just trying to learn everything I could, basically, because I, I, I didn't know. I was like, maybe I want to be an editor. Maybe I want to be a writer. I didn't know that I wanted. I had no concept that I would end up in a face the nation. I had no concept. Of, um, I was just sort of like, let me figure this out. Let me see what I am interested in here. And how do I get to being that correspondent in the Middle East? And you're right. That's one of the big things that is tough if you are starting out in journalism, particularly in the environment we're in. That investment of investing in young people and sending them out and building them, that's not necessarily there. It's you said stringers, that's like freelancers that you are paying, you are not paying to go move to Cairo. That's saying, well, kid, if you move to Egypt, call me. Maybe I'll hire you here or there. That wasn't really so much of an option, certainly not for a 22 year old girl straight out of college. Were you able to make overtures to these, you know, Foreign policy, and foreign policy coverage heavies. I'm thinking Christiane Amanpour. Like, what if you made a beeline for her or a mentor? Oh, I was or... terrified of her. When I interned at CNN, when she walked by, I was like... <gasps> Were there people that took you in at that point and said, listen, focus, get a couple of these under your belt. Uh, let's see if we could get you abroad to cover, I don't know, the, the World well, I Economic was, Forum. I was a producer for a number of years. And um, one of the anchors who I produced for after Lou Rukeyser, his name is Ron Insana. Uh, had a show in the middle of the day called Street Signs. You probably remember it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, he would do, he was always great because we'd come in and pitch all the time. And all those skills are really important to learn how to write up, you know, it's not necessarily we call them packages where they're the stories you watch on your evening news broadcast. But like when you're doing cable and you are constantly reinventing the wheel every single day to fill this hour with what's important, Right. And you go, how about we cover this thing this way? And you have to walk into that pitch meeting with, here's the guest, here's the idea, here's how we do it. All those things were lessons that informed the next role. And so I was booking and I was researching and I was doing all those things. It wasn't like I walked in and said, make me Christiana Manpour. So that's how it worked. But he gave me a few opportunities to do. I remember doing something on. Um, I remember you covering a, a lot of retail initially. Well, that was when they actually gave me the job being a correspondent. I see. I had to show that I could do it and then say I was leaving. And then they made me a correspondent. I see. <laughs> um, it's sort of, you know, that's often how it works. And so when I talk to people who are, who are starting out in television. It's it's not a clear, here's my vision for you. Or at least that was not my experience. It was like, learn everything you can, say yes to things, take on the skills, and then see where you are. Full disclosure, do stay with us. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. This is the part of the show where I remind you that our broadcast length is about 52 minutes. We hit up against it, but in this time of rampant shrinkflation where you're getting so much <laughs> less for more, uh, where's Roger Duval, our station manager? Roger, I ask your permission to let me take this podcast to an hour. What say the audience? <laughs> We'll do it live. <laughs> Margaret Brennan's so infinitely scalable. You just don't want, you want to oh, no. take her in all different directions. <laughs> um, when were you first sent abroad? Were you able to do one of these Davos junkets? I did go to Davos. Yeah. What was that like? Um, I've been a few times. I'm trying to remember the first time I went. I think it was with Bloomberg. Mm. How did you go to Bloomberg? I, I didn't have a choice in the matter, by the way. They bought my magazine, Business Week. Okay. God bless the mayor. I still have nightmares about the place. You know, it was they they tracked our badges going in. I had a close bond with the peanut butter machine in the sky lobby upstairs. It would um, you know, nobody likes that. <laughs> Free machine. food's a thing there. Um But you you crushed it at Bloomberg. You were the face of the mornings on Bloomberg. And I remember that person who I did CNBC appearances with was now in complete control. Oh, you know, Portugal and Greece were falling apart. Arab Spring, she covered it. Hedge fund scandal, she covered it. Economy, Fed, Davos, she covered it. I mean, that was quite a trajectory from 2002 to when you went to Bloomberg, I think, in 2009. Well, but you know, TV is a team sport and um, all of that anchoring and stuff that was with producers and and researchers and the wonderful Bloomberg terminal where you can look up anything, anything yeah. about anything. Italian um, rabbit meat futures included, apparently. <laughs> yeah, here's the price. This yeah. is why it costs us. Um, but no, I uh, I went on air when I was at CNBC. So I had on-air experience as a retail reporter, which ended up being during the financial crisis, which was an incredible education um, to report on that. And, and to say watch. nothing of the Arab Spring, I mean, I, I associate yeah. your face with Tahrir Square. We did well, appearances was, on it. And as short lived as it was, it was a revolutionary moment. And I so fast forward to Bloomberg um, and I had that two hour program that I anchored and we were going through all these different debt crises and things like that in the Arab Spring. And I kept asking to go send me to Tahrir Square in Cairo, send me, send me, send me. We had a correspondent there. But it's a bigger deal when you send the anchor of a show. It's a lot harder to do a whole show um, versus a correspondent. And it was like the last, one of the last few days where it was apparent something had to change with Hosni Mubarak, the president for 30 years, um, signaling that, you know, he was looking for options to step down. And there were like two more flights out. And <laughs> that was basically what what we were told. Like, if she's going to go, she has to go today. And I raced home um, and it was I, I made it onto the plane um, with not a lot of lead time, which is often how things happen in TV. And now that I think of it, it was completely unsafe. But <laughs> they like I had no producer with me and I landed, took the taxi and I was probably overly confident because I could get by speaking with people in Arabic at that point. And I walked through Tahrir Square to my hotel, um, where our correspondents who'd been there for so long uh, had been covering the story. So I'm sure I was the annoying anchor who swept in at the last minute. But it was an amazing moment to be there. And we were on air live when Hosni Mubarak announced he was stepping down from power in this what looked like this popular uprising that then kicked off 
all these other. Um, Tunisia was first, but then Egypt. And um, it was an incredible moment. But it brings me back to what are the things that are common there. And it was rampant inflation. People couldn't afford food. It was, you know, a, a state that was abusive in many ways, police state of, of the people. But it was the economy that was fueling a lot of discontent and protest in Tunisia and in Egypt. And so when people are like, oh, but the economy's over here and politics are over here, you're like, no, what people experience and how they experience the world is quite often through if they can afford to eat, you know, what that kitchen table experience is for them. That is common in every single society. So if you just approach covering politics that way and you take the personal out of it, politics, I mean, inflation is a really dangerous political thing, no matter what country you're talking about. Um, and that's that was just one of those things where I was able to bring and connect those dots that that were interesting to me. Were you surprised at how quickly it fizzed out or, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood did come to power nominally, but then yeah. it was snuffed out and this a new what, strong man was yeah. put in place? When you have weak institutions and you don't have strong alternatives, sometimes deliberately so, um, and then you go from strong man to to untried opposition, it's a dangerous thing. Right. And so those are the scenarios that the political scientists on the foreign policy front play out where I'm trying to remember what's the phrase. It's one of those ridiculous phrases. Catastrophic success. You had catastrophic success. The bad guy's gone. But oh, my God, who fills the void? And they've only been in the opposition for 30 years and they don't know how to govern and they don't have institutions. And what do we do? In the case of Egypt, the military continued basically controlling things. And now you have President Sisi in power because of those military ties. Tell me about the move to CBS News. You went incognito for a while. You were in stealth mode and then you resurfaced. I said, yes, diplomatic affairs correspondent covering the State Department. I, I always sense that that's really what you wanted to do. And it just kept morphing into something bigger and bigger and bigger. And now you're helming face the nation. You're making it sound like it was it was almost planned and it was not. It was um, a wonderful series of opportunities that came at key moments. So after that happened in with the Arab Spring and my coverage, it just kind of reminded me of like, I like being out there. I like going into the field. I like covering these things. I want to do more of this. Um, and so conversations started happening with other networks about that, um, how I would do it, where I would do it, what form it would take. And then CBS decided at that moment they wanted to put someone back at the State Department. They hadn't had a State Department correspondent for a while. Hmm. I mean, if you think of foreign policy was very much military forward sure. for a long time during the Iraq and Afghanistan, the heat of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And then you had the Obama administration in there saying, we really want to lean into diplomacy. And they had Hillary Clinton at the State Department. So you had this Secretary of State people assumed was going to be running for president. And suddenly the State Department in Foggy Bottom looked a lot sexier to news networks than it had for a very long time. And of course, time. it was politics adjacent because everybody kind of knew it was coming down the pike that she would run in 2016. Certainly. And, and she had stature um, already. And, and that is the thing that typically with Secretary of State roles, they walk in representing the United States. They're often these you know, presidential contenders. John Kerry, I covered as well as Secretary of State. So it was this wonderful period of opportunity where there were big negotiations happening, certainly with Secretary Kerry reopening Cuba. We had the Iran nuclear deal, which ate up a huge, you know, portion of, of my life covering that. You also had scandal um, and horrific death with Benghazi. You had 
um, a number of different initiatives that ultimately didn't pay off in the long run, like the attempt to get chemical weapons out of Syria because of what you talked about, the red line moment and the choice to try to get Assad to hand things over. Um, so there were these incredible moments that happened. Um, and so that led into being at the White House and then having covered Secretary Clinton, it looked like there might be a President Clinton. She didn't win. I don't know if you know that. Donald Trump won. And all of a sudden, it was learning the Trump administration. And guess what? He brought a lot of guys from Wall Street with him. Um, so some of those, I've, all of a sudden, you know, there's Gary Cohen and there, there's... Well, wasn't Rex lady, Tillerson his first state Rex secretary? Rex Tillerson, the Exxon CEO, right? Who, like, in business world, everyone was trying to book him. He was the killer interview to get because he was this legend in the oil industry. He was the Secretary of State. Yeah. Years later, Larry Kudlow, who was a CNBC anchor, I had co-anchored a show with him, was, you know, a uh, for a bit. Um, Life happens fast. In. It's crazy. So, like, these weird things happen. So, I'm saying these moments where you're like, I had no idea those things were going to um, come together. But anyway, it was in uh, 2018 that um, Face the Nation had a transition and was looking for a new moderator. And my colleague, John Dickerson, who I mentioned earlier, was a rock star, had moved to New York. So the DC job, they were looking to fill it. And I remember when my um, agent called and said, do you want to try out for it? And I was like, they're never going to give it to me, but sure. And then I filled in a few times and for a few weeks. And Mary Hager, who is the, the backbone of the show um, and um, so hugely important to maintaining the integrity and the credibility of the program. I was absolutely thrilled but shocked when I, I got the job offer. Um, and it was also terrifying because it was also me getting pregnant around the same time with my very first child. So I had this amazing opportunity of this great job and my first child at the same time. So, And you moved to D.C.? Oh, no, I was in D.C. at that point. I moved mm. to D.C. in 2012. Well, in the few minutes we have left with you, Margaret, regrettably, because I would take this to three hours, but you, oh, were, up, <laughs> you, were, up, you were up at four in the morning with your preschooler. Talk to me. I mean, we hear so much about the death of linear TV and the eyeballs are shrinking and people are cord cutting left and right. And yet 60 minutes, I would say, and Face the Nation and CBS This Morning, they're very good at you know, transmogrifying into Twitter moments or Instagram moments. I think about transmogrifying. Yeah, Ooh, well whatever, whatever word I missed on the SAT, <laughs> it's like the way I get my revenge forty years later. But <laughs> I don't even know what it means to be honest. But uh, so, for example, this this you held Nikki Haley's feet to the fire when she wouldn't come and criticize uh, Donald Trump for you know being convicted of sexual abuse and harassment, that had a long lifespan on Twitter and on Insta. And people were posting it on LinkedIn. How are you going to make yourself indispensable to younger viewers? I'm thinking about, you know, uh, Brooks Glazer is here. He's nine years old. He likes to watch. Uh, he watches <laughs> CBS. Oh, he's eight years old? Seven? How old are you? Tw what? <laughs> the kids, they grow so fast. Well, I had... The, the father will not make plans with me Sunday morning because they're like, oh, it's inviolate. I have to watch CBS Sunday morning. And sometimes it's, you know, that comes with Face the Nation and everything. How do you secure that next generation of viewers, those eyeballs to stay with you and to have brand loyalty if people are not watching TV, per se? Brooks, do you want to come up here and tell us how to? <laughs> You're right. The industry is all trying to figure it out um, to find people where they are and how they consume information right now. Um Sundays are really special for CBS because of all the programs you just laid, laid out there, including Face the Nation. And I'm 
we're proud of that. We're proud of doing well um, in the in the traditional space, but we have to figure all this out. All of us are sort of as TV networks, you know, how do you reach the person who's cord cutting? You know, my brother watches me on an app. He doesn't even have a TV hooked up in his house and he's 36. Um, it's, we're not talking about people who are not old enough to vote. We're talking about people who are, have children themselves who don't watch on traditional television sets, right? But how do they engage? And you just said one of the ways, which is social media. And I found that when I came down to UVA in the fall, I was really interested in talking to some of the students in the Center for Politics seminar that I I did that day. And they were explaining that their first encounter quite often is on social media with a topic. And then they use that as the entry point to sort of click through, not just watch that issue, but then seek out more information on it. And then sometimes they go to the paper. Sometimes they go to watching it on their phone. But that's another screen we're on. Um, It's just a different way to consume and seek out information. The risk in that, I think, is also that it's it's siloed, where like if you're only doing the things you're interested in, you're missing some of the stuff maybe you should know. How do you get that? How do you get someone to not just watch the quick bite on Nikki Haley, but watch the I think it was nine minute, 10 minute interview we did to hear the whole thing and the whole context. I think that's the challenge. Um, And I think you are in a form right now of just having thoughtful, extended conversations. I don't think that it's not possible, right, Mm -hmm. to have people seek that out. I think it's just trying to get it in front of them. I think people do like hearing something longer than a 30 second soundbite. And the issues that we are facing right now as a country and as a world are certainly worthy of contextualized conversation. So I'd love more people to be able to access Face the Nation around the world in whatever way they listen. You can listen to our podcast now, you know, and I've had friends say that they just listen to the show audio when they're going for a run, right? Mm -hmm. If they're not watching or people abroad listen that way. We're on the streaming network, um, which is our digital network as well. The show replays there. We put the full episodes on YouTube, so that you can go to the YouTube channel for Face the Nation and go and watch. So we are out there. It's just like, how do you get the metrics to measure all of that? That's changing the business model, the traditional ad model. Margaret Brennan, just two decades out of college, in her own words, felt clueless working for Louis Rukeyser, <laughs> was terrified of interviewing hedge fund people, and now she's interviewing world no, leaders. No, I was clueless. <laughs> I was clueless. On Face the Nation, one of the tentpole Sunday morning shows, I mean, venerable, storied, and you're celebrating your fifth year there. So props, congrats, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Rob, for the time. <laughs> Full disclosure, full disclosure, special thanks to producer Claire Morgan and the team at Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station, celebrating its 50th anniversary. Dutchie Morelli, Dave Seidel, Sandy Hausman, Chuck Johnston, Roger Duvall. I'd like to thank the entire team at the Paramount who scrambled the Jets in record time to get this together. Andy, Matthew, Kyle, Alexi. Julie, Eve, Chandler, Mark, and Gary, and major props to Hugo Rojo and Sophia Barkoff at CBS News. Thank you for arranging this. I mean, we were up against UVA graduation and Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, <laughs> but 
We did it. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. A shout out to our radio listeners across the great Commonwealth on Radio IQ NPR. Holler if you two would like us on your air. And don't forget to catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week. Thank <laughs> you.